to another episode of the Corrosion Journal interview series. My name is Sammy Miles, and I'm the Managing Editor-in-Chief of Corrosion Journal, which is AMP's peer-reviewed scientific journal. Today, we welcome Winston Reeve as our guest. Winston is Corrosion's longest-serving associate editor. Thanks for joining me today, Winston. Well, it's a pleasure. Glad to have the opportunity. So many of our listeners will recognize your name from several books you've co-authored and edited over the years including Corrosion and Corrosion Control, an Introduction to Corrosion Science and Engineering, ULIG's Corrosion Handbook, as well as the Oil and Gas Pipelines Integrity and Safety Handbook, which are household staples for many in the industry, but they might not know much about your story. So to start with, could you tell me a little about your background? How did you first get into corrosion? Indeed, I'd be glad to discuss that. So um, I was studying um, metallurgical engineering at McGill University in Montreal in the 1960s. And uh, about uh, a year or so before I uh, was due to graduate, I was started to think about what I wanted to do after graduation. And I decided I was going to do some kind of uh, postgraduate work and probably get a postgraduate degree, a master's or a PhD or maybe both. Um, so at that time, um, I found that there were uh, a few articles coming out um, in journals about the use of metals in the human body, uh, like for surgical implants. And specifically, I remember an interesting article in the Journal of Metals in 1964 by Ludwigson, who at that time was at the U.S. Steel Applied Research Lab in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. And um, his article in the Journal of Metals was about the use of prosthetic metals in the human body. And I thought, man, this sounds like interesting work. Uh, clearly, there was research going on in this area. So I wrote to Ludwigson and asked him about where a person could study this kind of stuff. You know, if you wanted to uh, do postgraduate studies in this area after getting a bachelor's degree in metallurgical engineering, where might one go? And uh, one of the uh, universe, he wrote back to me and um, he gave me a list of. Um, I think three or four universities where this type of work was done. One of them was Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Okay. So, so I wrote to them. I wrote to RPI in Troy and um, ended up uh, going down and uh, meeting with Norbert Green, Professor Norbert Green. His wife um, uh, also worked in the lab there and uh, spent a day at RPI in Troy. And um, they took me to lunch. And um, at the lunch, uh, Professor Green asked me the question. He said, well, if you want to do work in surgical implants at RPI, that means working in corrosion. Are you interested in this, working in corrosion? And I said, oh, Absolutely. It sounds like a great area. It sounds exciting, in fact, studying corrosion inside um, people. Actually, it was actually inside animals. Not We weren't actually working on, on people. So anyway, that's how I got into corrosion. And from then on, I studied corrosion, went down to RPI, and um, worked on uh, fascinating work with the Albany Medical Center a collaborative program between RPI and the Albany Medical Center 
with the orthopedic surgery department at uh, Albany and uh, did this work on measuring corrosion rates in uh, dogs and rabbits using some recently developed electrochemical techniques. So that's how I got into the area. And um, it was really uh, an exciting bit of work. Um, and anyway, if um, I can go on and say, uh, you know, um, when I started there, the day I started at RPI in uh, August, I think it was of um, 1966, there was another student who also started that day. Uh, he, he came from MIT. He had done a master's at MIT and was coming to RPI. Uh, and so uh, after discussion with him, I thought, gee, MIT sounds interesting. Maybe I should check into it. So I did, I went down uh, to um, Cambridge, Massachusetts and mm -hmm. uh, met, met Herb Ulig and um, saw the lab there and uh, Herb encouraged me to, to apply and so I did. So after finishing my master's at RPI, went down to MIT and uh, started on a PhD program there, which I uh, s completed working on fundamental aspects of um, uh, corrosion uh, largely of um, a copper uh, when stress is applied and the effects on strength. Um, so towards the end of my uh, stay at, at MIT, um, I started wondering, well, what am I going to do once I've got the PhD? And I had an idea that I'd like to do something on the fundamental, some fundamental study on corrosion. One of the well-known electrochemists of that time was John Bachris. And uh, Herb Ulig mentioned to me, when I discussed this with him, he said, well, you know, Bacris is moving to Australia soon. Uh, I think he's going in a few months time. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. But after, after thinking about it for a while, I thought, oh, you know, he's going to Australia. That might be interesting. A trip to Australia and working in Australia sounds exciting. So, I, so I, wrote to, I wrote to Professor Bacris at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and uh, he asked me to come down and have an interview there. So I did. I went down to Philadelphia. And um, so he had pictures of the Flinders campus around his office. It looked like a very nice place. And the Flinders, of course, was uh, just on the outskirts of Adelaide in South Australia. Sounded like a wonderful climate there. He was going to do some research. And um, oh, well, so um, I told him, yeah, look, I'm interested. Let's, let's, uh, let's uh, pursue this one. So once he got to Australia, he wrote back to me, offering me the job. And to make a long story short, off I went to Australia with my PhD from MIT and uh, spent a couple of years at Flinders. Now, um, Flinders University of South Australia was a new university at that time and uh, everything was brand new, new equipment and new everything. So it was, uh, it was uh, very nice there. Anyway, after a couple of years there, I thought now, uh, once I finish this postdoctoral here, uh, what am I gonna do now? And um, there was a lot of interest at that time in solar energy and uh, the Australian National University in Canberra had a project that was uh, starting up on solar energy. And I thought, well, maybe this would be interesting to do. Solar energy, background in corrosion and electrochemistry. Uh, gee, this sounds exciting. So um, I, I did have an interview there. And um, yeah, they offered me the job. And then I was in Canberra. Uh, and that was great. I'm working on solar energy. It was a, um, a a, a program that would use a high-grade um, uh, thermal energy um, and um, uh, 
that would operate a boiler system to produce electricity. Anyway, it was it was really um, uh, more work that was sort of ahead of its time. In the 70s, um, in the US then there was the oil crisis and there was a lot of interest in solar energy, but over, um, over the decades, the interest waned a bit until just the present fairly, fairly recent times when solar energy has really come into its own. But anyway, while I was um, down in uh, ANU, I decided I was gonna come back to Canada and eventually uh, did come back. I worked for a few months at HSA Reactors in Toronto, uh, a company of Sankar Desgupta, uh, which is still in business actually under a different name, Electrovea. But um, anyway, um, there was a position at, uh, in the federal government at Natural Resources Canada or Energy Mines and Resources in those days. And um, so I ended up coming to um, Ottawa and spending 33 years working mainly on oil and gas pipelines, which had its own excitement over all those years. So that's a little, a little bit of history. And I retired in um, 2011, uh, 10 years ago, and um, still working on corrosion, editing books and keeping books up to date and doing some consulting work. So, so you've, you've mentioned a few different industries here um, between implants and solar and oil and gas. How have, how have those fields changed over the years? For example, I know you mentioned with solar, it was groundbreaking. Um, it was new in 60s and 70s. How is that different from the research being done today? Well, today, um, research is very focused on applications. Um, in the 60s and 70s um, and um, in that era, um, there was still a lot of very good fundamental research being done. And in corrosion, um, the fundamental research has actually been helped by the development of um, a very, um, very advanced systems for microstructural characterization, uh, microscopes and different types of different techniques for characterizing microstructures. Um, the corrosion area has become, I'd say a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the equipment requirements um, today. Now the industries themselves sort of come and go, you know, like back in the 60s, there was a certain amount of interest in surgical implants and materials materials used in medicine. Life magazine in the 1960s had a really big article uh, and the cover I think was devoted to, um, I think it showed a, um, a model of a person with all these different implants in it. Um, but today um, that type of research has really expanded. I mean today most metallurgy and material science departments have somebody studying biomaterials. And there are major, there's a major international conference that's held every few years on bio, biomaterials. So uh, solar energy was exciting back in the 70s, a lot of interest in it, but then oil really, you know, it didn't disappear. We didn't run out of oil. Um, and the price of oil came down actually a lot. And so it's really uh, just recently that um, the environmental movement has really taken over and the price of oil has, is a, it, um, it's fairly low at the present time, but um, because of the uh, climate change considerations, the renewables are really uh, where there's a lot, of, a lot of action today. Right, so 
it, and it's interesting to see how these have changed over time. Um, and I'm assuming, for example, with with some of the biomaterials, um, even the the alloys, not just the technologies in terms of the microscopes and things like that, that have changed over the years, the actual materials we're using, such as magnesium and different things, um, how we're leveraging those and the corrosion properties therein, that's that's been changing as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's some um, very interesting research that's going on now on um, uh, surgical implants that will dissolve. And so um, rather than having a stainless steel or a titanium implant, say to uh, fix up a broken bone, um, and then having to remove that implant once the bone is all healed, um, you might be able to have a, a magnesium, a type of magnesium alloy implant that would last as long as it's required to last. And in time, it would just dissolve. So there's quite a bit of research going on in that mm -hmm. area. And um, also in, in all kinds of areas where uh, there's um, the demand because people are living to old, an older age now, you know, and um, so, um, you know, like for repairing hernias, uh, polypropylene, polypropylene mash is frequently used. And um, so um, that stays in a person forever, normally. Mm -hmm. And, um, but uh, the materials um, are evolving. I mean, there's uh, artificial skin that is, <clears throat> that I think is being studied now uh, to help burn victims and, um, Materials research in medicine is actually quite important today. Mm -hmm. And so the, the largest portion of your career you've spent um, working on oil and gas and pipelines. Can you elaborate a little more about how the industry's changed during, during the decades that you spent working on that? Indeed, indeed. <clears throat> um, so the oil and gas industry specifically the pipelines, you know, they're made of steel. Pipelines are made of steel, these high strength, high strength, low alloy steels. And the developments of metallurgy have made it possible for the pipelines to operate at higher pressures and use less steel. There has been a great interest in, in um, using higher and higher strength steels mm -hmm. because if the steel is higher strength, you can use a higher pressure. And with higher pressure, you get more natural gas that you can deliver in unit per, per, per unit time. So if you have a high strength steel, you use less steel because it's stronger. You have a higher pressure, higher pressure in the pipe. And because there's less steel, you, the transportation costs off to remote sites where the pipeline has to be assembled is less. And um, there's less material to weld, and so you save in mm -hmm. all, the, all these different ways. There's also um, some downside because uh, higher strength steels are less forgiving in terms of uh, defects. The critical defect size for the higher strength steels is smaller than for uh, lower strength steels. And so there's a, there's a quality control and a whole issue about um, uh, monitoring the corrosion of these steels or, or inspecting the steel for, for corrosion and defects. So um, over the years, um, inline inspection is one of the major areas that's really been developed. Um, 
so that pipelines can be inspected uh, thoroughly um, and with confidence that defects are going to be picked up during the inspection. Um, so there's inspection, which is done every few years. Mm -hmm. And then there's monitoring, which is done continuously all, all the time. So those two areas have really been developed. Um, the other thing that's affected the pipeline industry is the um, public awareness of pipelines. Um, there were a couple of uh, major failures which uh, caused the pipeline to become, uh, caused the industry uh, to be um, very much in the public um, knowledge. And so the combination of, um, you know, the background of a couple of, uh, a couple of unfortunate failures, uh, plus um, the, um, the tendency of the public to really question the use of fossil fuels uh, that produce uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases has really uh, had a big, had a big uh, change, a big influence on the uh, oil and gas industry. Right, right, which makes sense um, and goes back to that emphasis on all the renewables that we're seeing in a resurgence lately. Uh, absolutely. You know, there's, <clears throat> there's hydroelectric power and there's solar, there's wind, mm -hmm. there's geothermal. And you can, if you can harness all of those, then, uh, uh, you know, you've really got um, uh, quite an array of, uh, of options for energy. Right. right. Um, I'm going to pivot real quick because I want to make sure to take a moment to share some of the contributions with our listeners that you've had um, in the field. You've, you've been recognized as being instrumental for initiatives such as being a founding trustee of the Canadian National Capital Section of NACE International, a founding president of the NACE Foundation of Canada, a founder of the Banff Pipeline Workshop, BPW, um, just for a few of them. And I know with that biennial BPW conference that you started in 93, it brings together industry personnel, regulators, service providers, researchers, and other stakeholders to identify industry issues and provides a platform to develop and deploy solutions, which is of utmost importance. As, as you're mentioning through um, some of your comments, we need to bring people together and discuss different things and how to make it better. For these contributions and others, you've been honored with, as a fellow in a number of organizations such as NACE, ASM International, and the Electrochemical Society. With that said, what do you feel is your, your greatest contribution to the field? Well, you know, um, that's really for others to judge from their own perspective. You know, some people might think, well, that work I did on... Um, uh, on the surgical implants back in the 60s was new and uh, different from anything else. Um, they might think that was the, um, the uh, greatest contribution, but others, you know, who come to the pipeline workshops in Banff, um, you know, the last workshops have had uh, between 800 and 1,000 people in attendance. And some people might think, well, maybe, maybe developing those workshops or establishing the workshops was the greatest contribution. So different people, you know, might have their own view on, on um, the relative uh, merits of, of, of separate con con uh, contributions. We did indeed uh, set up the Canadian National Capital Section of NACE International in the uh, 1990s 
and um, that was certainly a, um, it was a great um, it was a um, really interesting thing to do because it brought together all the people in the corrosion area who were working in the Ottawa area and surrounding vicinity. Um, until that time, you know, we had the different um, uh, different corrosion labs in Ottawa, but uh, we didn't actually have a venue for meeting regularly. And so establishing the section here was really a great advance, actually, because it, it, it served as a venue for all of the uh, corrosionists uh, in the area to uh, get together. And we've had some very interesting conferences here since we uh, set up the section. Great, and I'm hopefully they continue as we or move into a virtual platform and then you're the short term until we can get back to having in-person meetings. Well, yes, dialogues. That, that's right. I, I hope we can start having them soon, actually. Um, but um, in Canada, of course, uh, we have our own schedule for vaccinations. And I mm -hmm. don't think this I don't think the schedule's been totally worked out. I heard President Biden talking uh, uh, last night, actually, he had a State of the Union address or a he had a public address and um, he was optimistic. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll get there. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, right. Um, so what is what advice do you have to the industry? Well, for corrosion, there are really four things. Um, first of all, what we learned in the 60s, actually, when I started studying corrosion um, at McGill was design corrosion out. Uh, make the best design that's possible um, so that corrosion uh, won't have the opportunity to, uh, to work its... Um, degrading effects. So design it out. A uh, com uh, combination of materials design, process design, cathodic protection, inhibitors, and coatings. Okay, all design. Mm -hmm. Then the second thing is inspect for corrosion as frequently as necessary. And uh, maybe develop a model for the development of corrosion so that you may be able to predict the crack growth rate or defect growth rates and, and decide on what the interval needs to be between inspections so that you don't reach the critical defect size that leads to failure fairly quickly okay so inspect mm -hmm. and, and and have a model for the for the corrosion development so that you can predict the time required between inspections and then beyond inspection there's monitoring so that's continuous monitoring like um for pipelines i think um uh, they, they'll have um, aircraft flying over the pipeline uh, relatively frequently to to monitor uh, any gas that's being emitted from a natural gas pipeline or to look at the change in snow cover on the ground and if you can see that the snow is melting well maybe there's something coming from the pipeline so that's the third thing monitor and then the last one is uh, engage a corrosion specialist um, to uh, to review the plans and um, and uh, the procedures for construction, operation, and maintenance, and uh, to and to be able to assess the data from the inspection and monitoring during operation. So three things: design, inspect, monitor, and engage a corrosion specialist who can who can uh, add expertise. Wonderful. And on a more personal note, what advice do you have for people to excel at their jobs in the corrosion field? Well, okay, good question. Um, I think that um, uh, as a person settles into a job, um, he or she would 
would, um, over a period of time, personalize the job to their own unique expertise. Like corrosion is a multidisciplinary area and um, uh, it involves metallurgy, involves chemistry and different branches of chemistry. There's organic chemistry for inhibitors typically. Um, and uh, also there's physics involved. Um, so depending on a person's background, they're going to have their own unique uh, contributions to the area. And it's really, I, what I think is that um, it's, it's what you do over and above the minimum that's required in the job description. Like the job description specifies the things you, you, you do. Um, now, you know, when I uh, established the Banff Pipeline Workshops, um, there was nothing in my job description to say, you know, I, I was supposed to do this. But it looked like something that needed to be done. Um, and it worked out that uh, it has been very popular in terms mm -hmm. of attendance, in terms of attendance. So my, my suggestion is to go above and beyond uh, what's in the job description and personalize the job to your own unique capabilities. And for, for, the, for the manager who's trying to uh, assemble a team on corrosion, my suggestion would be to because corrosion is so multidisciplinary, get people with backgrounds in the different areas. Like you could have, you know, somebody with a chemical background, a metallurgical background, and maybe a, a physics background, and maybe different uh, different sub backgrounds. So so that all the different areas are are covered off, or most of them anyway, uh, on your team, rather than just uh, having a group all with a chemical background or all with a metallurgical background, because of the of the uh, distinctiveness of corrosion as such a uh, an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary subject. I think that's great advice. And and I think that would help managers and I would I think that helps individuals in the field try to make the most out of their career and enjoy it to the fullest and be the most successful at what they do. Be the most successful at what they do. And you know, mm -hmm. um, just to put in a, a positive word about corrosion as a career to get into, um, you know, I don't think I have ever met a person who works in the corrosion area who wasn't really satisfied with his job, you know, or satisfied with the work he was doing. My, my suggestion to, to people is that, um, is that they need really to, to like the work that they do. And um, from what I've seen in corrosion is that uh, people do, uh, people in the area seem to be happy with what they do in corrosion. Um, so it, there's a, um, well, you know, whether they're doing failure analysis or whether mm -hmm. they're designing things to prevent failures. Um, I think that um, the corrosion does offer a rewarding career that uh, people in the field, I think, uh, tend to appreciate. Well, that's fantastic. Now, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time, so I want to ask real quick, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, uh, write me an email, send me an email, win25 at rogers.com. So win, the first three letters in my name, Winston, win25, the number 25 uh, at rogers.com, W-I-N-2-5 at R-O-G-E-R-S dot C-O-M. Perfect. And before we sign off, I'm going to borrow a feature from the Codings Pro interview series podcast. Um, Codings Pro is one of our sister publications here at AMP. 
and they've launched rapid fire questions, which provide our listeners with an opportunity to get to know our guests a little better. So with that, who is your hero or mentor? Well, I would say that the one I appreciated the most was Herb Ulick, actually. Um, he and I did a lot of work together after I completed my PhD. And um, I learned about his meticulous nature and how he proofread, uh, proofread the publications, proofread the book actually by reading it aloud. Uh, I spent many hours uh, with um, her, Professor Herb Ulig at the uh, in conference on, International Conference on Corrosion Fatigue at Storrs, Connecticut. I think it was in 1971. And we read the book aloud to do the, uh, he had the final proofs in his hand and um, we took turns reading aloud. And uh, he went through all the proofs and picked out the, um, picked out the typographical errors and made final corrections in the proofs. This was certainly a very thorough way of going about things and a way that I hadn't actually uh, seen before, but um, it's, uh, it's informed uh, my own uh, sort of uh, habits, I guess. I tend to be a bit meticulous in, um, in the editing process and checking things to make sure they're right. You know, um, um, a few years after I had uh, finished my PhD with uh, Herb Ulig, um, I was in the office of another scientist as he received a call. He received a telephone call from an editor who was asking about where the final proofs were and the corrections. Mm -hmm. So th this particular scientist just flipped through the pages. He, he, with the editor on the phone, flipped through the pages um, and he said, right, looks good to me go ahead. No corrections. Wow. <laughs> Big difference between those two styles. Absolutely. Excellent. So the second question I'm going to ask is what is your biggest pet peeve? Uh, needless bureaucracy and, um, <laughs> and um, paperwork. Of course, we're getting away from paperwork to a certain extent now since a lot of it is done. A lot of the bureaucratic stuff is done online. Now, that helps a bit, mm -hmm. but uh, still, I think there we could, we could cut down on the bureaucracy a bit and um, just uh, get on with the, uh, the actual uh, work and the research. I think, I think most of us will agree with that one. <laughs> well, with that, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. And well, it's a pleasure. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I'm Sammy Miles, and again, I'm here with Winston Reavy. Thank you for listening to another episode of Corrosion Journal's interview series. If you want to learn more about the journal, make sure to visit corrosionjournal.org. You can subscribe to AMP Podcasts if you haven't already on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the major distributors. You can find all episodes of AMP Podcasts on amp.org. That is A-M-P-P dot O-R-G. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.